I haven't been involved in advocacy since 2015. And so hearing these advances, because during the years that I was working, there were really only two significant changes in treatment. And one was that women were no longer being given whole brain radiation just as a matter of course. Mm -hmm. Targeted, focused radiation became much more standard. And the other change we saw, which was subtle, it was very difficult to find trials for metastatic patients that did not exclude any patient with a history of brain metastasis, whether or not it had been resolved. But by the time that I retired, that was far more common. And you may notice how many more listings there were in the later years. And I agree about active brain mets and and leptomeningeal disease. We need more of these trials that are broadly appealing to patients and that are not so selective, for sure. It's the most frightening aspect of the most frightening disease. Welcome to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face MBC alone. Hello, friends. I'm Victoria Goldberg. As you know, our NBC Life is taking a little break and the fourth season will not launch until March the 2nd. So you may be surprised to see the brand new episodes of this podcast. Well, these episodes are our special way to celebrate and mark the launch of a new website that was created by the metastatic breast cancer patient advocates for those in our community who are living with CNS metastasis, commonly known as brain mats. Last week, the host, Lisa Laudico, spoke with the architects of this incredible website, Christine Hodgson and Leanne Kramer, and legendary Musa Mayer. This website was inspired in part by the work that Musa did in the early 2000s. It was an extraordinary interview, and I urge you to listen to it if you haven't already done so. And by the way, you just heard Musa's voice at the open of this episode discussing the changes in the treatment of brain mats in the last 20 years. So today, we're doing something different. On October 12, 2021, Leanne Kramer and Cher hosted two brilliant young clinicians from Moffitt Cancer Center in a discussion on management of breast cancer brain metastasis. This podcast is a slightly edited audio of the webinar and the Q&A session at the end of it. I will let you in on a little secret. There are two compelling reasons for releasing this webinar. The first one is obvious to you, and it will be obvious as soon as you listen to it. It's very good, and it's very, very informative. The second reason is to give you a glimpse into how we envision our next season's road to a cure. Our core mission will continue unchanged. Intimate conversation with the leading experts doing the cutting-edge research into the science of breast cancer. But in addition, we would like to include more content with an educational angle for the newly diagnosed or those who simply want to dip their toes into weightier science water. We tentatively call this content MBC 101. Today's episode is an example of what we have in mind, and we call it our first MBC 101 on brain mats. So what are the brain metastases? or more correctly, CNS metastasis from breast cancer. They're the second most common cause of central nervous system metastasis. About 10 to 15% of women with stage four breast cancer 
develop brain metastasis. For most, the breast cancer has already traveled to another part of the body, such as the bones, liver, or lung. However, for about 17% of women in this group, the brain is the only site of metastasis. Brain metastasis can present as a single tumor or multiple tumors. This rate is as high as 25 to 50% for people with triple negative breast cancer and even higher, 30 to 50% in HER2 in her positive disease and 14% in hormone receptor positive disease. So here is Leanne Kramer introducing our guests. Welcome to the webinar of Management of Brain Metastasis. I'm Leanne Kramer. I'm a patient advocate. I'd like to introduce our speakers. Dr. Aixa Soyano is an assistant member in the Department of Breast Oncology at the H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center and an assistant professor at the University of South Florida. Dr. Soyano is originally from Venezuela and received her MD degree from the Luis Rizzetti School of Medicine at the Central University of Venezuela. She joined Moffitt Cancer Center to focus on breast cancer treatment and research. Her research interest is in the future of oncology related to personalized medicine. And then we also have Dr. Cameron Ahmed. He's an assistant member of the Department of Radiation Oncology and Department of Immunology at Moffitt Cancer Center. He is also an assistant professor in the Department of Oncologic Sciences at the University of South Florida. Dr. Ahmed received his medical degree from the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota, and completed his radiation oncology residency at Moffitt Cancer Center. Dr. Ahmed's clinical focus is on the management of breast cancer. Dr. Ahmed's primary research interest is in studying the synergy between combinations of immunologic and targeted agents with radiation therapy to improve clinical outcomes. He is the principal investigator of several multi-center clinical trials in the management of advanced disease and brain metastasis with novel therapeutic and radiation therapy. And with that, I am going to turn it over to our speakers. In the next segment, you will hear Dr. Ahmed, who is a radiation oncologist, explain how the brain metastasis develop and their risk factors. But local radiation therapies and ongoing clinical trials at Moffitt and other cancer centers are the main subject of his presentation. So here is Dr. Ahmed. Thank you so much for uh, having us. As was mentioned, I, I'm a radiation oncologist at Moffitt Cancer Center. I have a clinical and research interest in the study of breast cancer brain metastasis. I'm going to be speaking first and giving information about the local therapies for brain metastasis. How do brain metastases develop? What are the risk factors for the development of brain metastasis in, from breast cancer? It's believed that all brain metastases initially develop from the primary tumor site. The most common primary tumors that develop brain metastasis include breast cancer, lung cancer, and melanoma. From the primary tumor, cells enter the bloodstream and then can get arrested in the capillary beds of the blood-brain barrier. And then from here, slowly enter the brain vasculature with the assistance of certain genes and proteins. The risk factors for the development of brain metastasis in, from breast cancer, advanced stage of diagnosis, certain breast cancer subtypes, such as HER2 positive or triple negative, preferentially develop brain metastasis, and then also patients who have the BRCA1-2 gene mutations may also be at higher risk for the development of brain metastasis. There's other clinical factors that may also contribute to an increased risk. This includes a younger age, the development of pulmonary or lung metastasis, and then also African-American ancestry. So because of the blood-brain barrier, which um, limits the ability of traditional chemotherapeutics and targeted agents from entering um, the brain, local treatments have really been keys to the management of brain metastasis. It's believed that ionizing radiation treatment can kill cancer cells 
by causing DNA damage. This can lead to chromosomal damage, um, such as the dicentric ring formations of chromosomes that preferentially have the ability to kill cancer cells while allowing normal cells to regenerate. And so for patients who have more isolated brain metastasis, patients who are symptomatic from a larger brain metastasis, surgery is recommended for removal of that brain metastasis and for potential diagnoses as well. There's been a few important studies which have shown us that delivering radiation treatment to the tumor cavity following surgery is really now the standard. This includes one phase three study which showed that there was improved cognitive function with the delivery of SRS compared to whole brain radiation treatment, which is what we used to do years ago. And then another phase three study has also revealed that this reduces the risk of local recurrence in patients that have one to three surgically removed brain metastasis compared to observation. For patients who have a few lesions that are identifiable by MRI, stereotactic radiation treatment or focal radiation treatment is recommended. For patients who have more diffuse brain metastasis, this doesn't necessarily mean five, but um, certainly patients who have more than 15 brain metastasis, whole brain radiation treatment is recommended over stereotactic radiation treatment because in addition to the lesions that we might be able to identify on an MRI, there may also be micrometastatic deposits that could lead to better outcomes with whole brain radiation treatment. The radiation treatment planning process is generally the same for most patients. Initially, all patients will undergo a simulation scan. This could be done either with a CT or with an MRI. And then from this scan, the radiation oncologist plans out the delivery of the radiation treatment. This planning process can take a few days to a couple of weeks, depending on how complicated a radiation treatment plan is being created. There's always a verification process that takes place from the planning stage to make sure that what has been designed by the radiation oncologists alongside their radiation treatment planners and the physics team can actually be delivered on the machine. I mentioned the two different approaches that we use in terms of radiation to treat brain metastasis, whole brain radiation with radiation dose that's going throughout the brain is typically delivered over one to two weeks. And generally, these are lower doses than what we're using when treating with the stereotactic radiation. Stereotactic radiation treatment is a higher dose radiation treatment that's just focused in on the tumor that we can identify on an MRI. And this is delivered typically over one day, but for larger brain metastasis or following surgery, this may be delivered between three to five days. So what are the side effects of brain radiation treatment? Every patient is a little bit different, but generally for all patients in the short term, this could include fatigue. It could include scalp irritation or hair loss, which may or may not be permanent. There might be nausea or vomiting, headaches, as well as muffled hearing. It's important to note that a lot of these side effects can be managed fairly easily by your radiation oncologist if you have these side effects at all. Uh, Long-term side effects uh, from radiation treatment um, include short-term memory loss and the damage to normal tissue. That's a, a rare side effect of, of radiation treatment. One of the reasons why we like to use stereotactic radiation treatment over whole brain radiation treatment is because of um, the potential for short-term memory loss that can occur from whole brain radiation treatment. There have been studies that have looked at different techniques to minimize that side effect. One of these techniques is to avoid treating the hippocampus during the delivery of the whole brain radiation treatment. The hippocampus, which is located in the temporal lobe of the brain, has important functions in the development of memory. And by avoiding doses of radiation treatment there, we can decrease the effect on executive function and memory. In addition to that, we will prescribe memantine, which is a GABA receptor antagonist uh, given to patients who have dementia. Delivering this alongside the radiation treatment during and then up to six months afterwards has also been shown to be beneficial in reducing the effects to memory from whole brain radiation treatment. Factors that have been shown to help predict overall outcomes in patients that have brain metastasis were found to be performance status, breast cancer subtype, age, 
So patients who are older may uh, have potentially a worse outcome or more brain metastasis as well, too. An older study, um, this was published in 2015, found a range of survival between three to 26 months. And since that time, there's been a lot of new improvements in the management of brain metastasis, both in radiation treatment and in systemic management. But I think some of these factors still go into play in determining overall prognosis. So what is the impact of standard brain metastasis management? A couple of studies have shown that we might be able to get over the barrier that limits our ability to combine radiation treatment and systemic therapy if we can sequence the delivery of radiation in the window of about a one month in which we can limit the role of the blood-brain barrier in inhibiting the entry of a systemic agent and then allowing that agent to potentially act in the brain. Because of that, there's been a couple of studies that we've opened at Moffitt Cancer Center to help see whether or not we can potentially take advantage of that. Immunotherapy has had a large role in the management of other cancers, melanoma, non-smell cell lung cancer, and now also has an increasing role in the management of breast cancer. So we were interested in looking in the setting of breast cancer brain metastasis to see if there's a window that we could use to deliver the uh, immunotherapy with the radiation treatment to allow for an improved outcome. The small study that we did of 12 patients found that the treatment of was safe. And potentially this might be an option for triple negative patients. And we're going to be continuing to study this at Moffitt Cancer Center in an upcoming trial. And I just wanted to briefly touch um, on leptomeningeal disease and a potential treatment that we have for patients with this type of cancer. Leptomeningeal disease is a more advanced form of central nervous system metastasis. It's believed to involve the lining of the brain and the fluid that surrounds the brain and the spinal cord. For patients who have HER2-positive leptomeningeal disease, it's been shown that if we can deliver HER2-targeted therapy directly into the cerebrospinal fluid through an Omaya reservoir, we might be able to lead to improved outcomes. A study published in 2018 showed us that using intrathecal receptin with the delivery through an Omaya reservoir may have a benefit for patients that have HER2-positive disease. And now at Moffitt Cancer Center, we have opened a subsequent trial where we're delivering intrathecal herceptin alongside intrathecal pertuzumab as well for patients that have HER2-positive leptomeningeal disease. Radiation treatment plays a, a large role in patients with leptomeningeal disease by palliating symptoms. With this, Dr. Ahmed concluded his presentation. And I hope you noted an interesting discussion about two new approaches in treating CNS meds. The first one is hippocampus sparing whole brain radiation. Hippocampus-sparing whole brain radiation was supported by insights into an unexpected source, taxi drivers in London. Back in 2010, researchers discovered that a part of the brain called the hippocampus was larger in London taxi drivers than other adults who didn't drive taxis. This part of the brain has been shown to be critical in new memory formation and learning. Researchers attributed the growth to the years of grueling training that taxi drivers endure to memorize some 25,000 streets and thousands of landmarks. The study provided one example that adult brains were more versatile than previously thought. Other research had also supported the theory that neural stem cells located in the hippocampus play a major role in adult learning and memory. Stem cells located in the, in the hippocampus are some of the most sensitive in the brain to radiation. With hippocampal sparing, doctors can use advanced technologies to shield the hippocampus from radiation beams while still treating the rest of the brain. Dr. Ahmed also talked about intrathecal trastuzumab and naprutuzumab in the management of HER2 positive leptomeningeal disease. Our brain and spinal cord are protected by three layers of tissue called meninges. Between two of the layers is cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, in a place called the intrathecal space. That's why cancer-fighting drugs placed into this space are called intrathecal chemodrugs, or IT chemo. 
One way to get this treatment is with lumbar puncture or spinal tap. Herceptin, of course, is given over a long period in many doses. Lumbar puncture just does not cut it. So a different delivery mechanism is generally used. This is a small dome-shaped device called an Omaya reservoir. It's placed on the patient's scalp during a short surgery. It has a catheter that connects to interthecal space. Getting treatment this way is like getting it through an IV port elsewhere in the body. And up next is Dr. Ixa Soyano. Thanks for having me today. And I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about the systemic therapies for breast cancer brain metastases. We know that not all breast cancers are the same. Not all breast cancers are developed or found because of the same cancer markers. So we tend to divide them into different subtypes. And those subtypes are based on the three main receptors that we can find in breast cancers, which are the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and the HER2 receptor. So when either the estrogen or the progesterone is overexpressed in breast cancer. We call that hormone-positive breast cancer. And what that means is that the breast cancer cells are feeding off of the hormones, estrogen or progesterone that's around in our bodies. So they use them as a food or fuel to live. The HER2 receptor is a different receptor. When it's overexpressed, it just allows the breast cancer cells to grow rapidly. So the most common subtype of breast cancer in the U.S. is hormone-positive HER2-negative and represents about 70% of those breast cancer cases. The other third is represented between the triple negative and the hormone-positive. And there's also uh, a different molecular subtyping. It's called luminal A, B, basal-like, and HER2. There's a lot of overlap, uh, but it tells us mainly that for those hormone positives, there are ones that have a little bit better prognosis and responsiveness to hormonal treatments and other ones that are less responsive to hormonal treatments, but responsive to chemotherapy. It allows us to determine what's the right treatment for each subtype of breast cancer. So back to breast cancer brain metastasis, how common is it? We know that as patients are living longer and breast cancer is a second most common cancer in the U.S. in females after skin cancers, and we're detecting it earlier, the incidence of breast brain metastasis seems to be going up as well. The meta-analysis, it means a collection of other trials that was published this year showed that the incidence of brain metastases at or following the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer ranges between 25 and 46%. So somewhere along the 20 to 40% of breast cancer patients that have metastases will develop um, metastases to their brain. We also know that the hormone positive HER2 negative was the most common subtype of breast cancer found in early stage, but this is not true true for uh, breast cancer brain metastases. In brain metastases, the most common ones are the HER2 positive and the triple negatives, and that represents a little bit over a third of those, and then only about 15% um, of the breast cancer brain metastases are hormone positive HER2 negative. Here at our institution, we did a retrospective review of all the um, brain metastases that were found in our database of breast cancer, lung cancer, melanoma. And we found that because there's no real screening national guidelines looking for brain metastases in breast cancer patients, the patients that had breast cancer were more likely to be younger with more advanced central nervous system disease, require whole brain radiation, and have poorer overall survival in general compared to the lung cancer patients and the melanoma patients. So it's food for thought about modifying and trying to find this patients earlier so that their outcome can be improved in the future. But why is it um, so challenging to treat and how is it that it's so common? So Dr. Ahmed already talked a little bit about the blood-brain barrier. So we know that it's a network of vessels and tissue that keeps the space very close so that harmful substances cannot penetrate the brain because the brain is our most vital organ. So we don't want any harmful substances or toxins or bacteria or viruses to get into that space. 
However, in patients that have brain metastasis, as we mentioned before, sometimes when we do radiation, we open a space into that blood-brain barrier, and some of those drugs can actually penetrate, um, and that will help the brain metastasis treatment. So um, hormone-positive HER2-negative breast cancer, as we said, is the most common subtype of breast cancer. It tends to be more indolent, and the patients tend to have a longer life expectancy. Common sites of metastases include the bones, the lungs, and the liver. And initial treatment options include endocrine therapy, which we call hormone blockers, plus or minus targeted therapy, which could be CDK4-6 inhibitors or mTOR inhibitors. These are inhibitors of particular um, areas of the cell cycle. So if we are inhibiting division of the cells, the cells get arrested and they cannot uh, further progress. Some common CDK4-6 inhibitors are Ibrance or palbocyclib, Versinio or abemacyclib, and Kiskali or ribocyclib. Why is that important? Because we know that um, CDK4-6 inhibitors, especially palbocyclib and abemocyclib, have shown some intracranial activity in small early phase trials. So it gives us an idea that these drugs potentially can penetrate that blood-brain barrier and help treat the brain metastases in combination with the local regional therapies. There was also a phase two trial of hormone-positive metastatic patients with active brain metastases that showed a modest clinical benefit in this patient. So this is a small trial, and even though they did not meet what we call their primary endpoint, it included a variety of patients. So it included patients that were not resectable, meaning they couldn't go to surgery, patients that had the more advanced CNS disease called leptomeningeal disease, and patients that were actually uh, planning to have surgery. But importantly, the blood studies that from the patients from this trial showed that there were adequate concentrations of the drug of emocyclib in their brain metastases that suggest that there was a good penetrance of this drug. So that led us to study that here at Moffitt Cancer Center, Dr. Ahmed being the PI. So we have a phase one, two study of stereotactic radiation or SRS in the management of patients that are hormone positive or two negative with brain metastases. So this trial allows patients that are eligible for SRS that have up to 15 brain meds and they will give them abemocyclib along with radiation, and they will continue their uh, abemocyclib and endocrine therapy, and we will examine what's the follow-up in their response. So the trial that we just talked about is open here at the Moffitt Cancer Center. But additionally, at Emory University in Atlanta, there's a similar study using stereotactic radiation surgery with abemocyclib, ribocyclib, or palbocyclib in treating this patient. So another investigator is looking at that same concept. Hopefully, we'll have more data so we can change practice for the future. A different subtype of breast cancer is called triple negative. And what that means is it lacks expression of estrogen, progesterone, or the HER2 receptor. These cancers tend to be more aggressive and are associated with genetic mutations or predispositions such as BRCA mutations, PALB2 mutations, among others. And these patients are commonly treated with chemotherapy, plus or minus a combination with immunotherapy. The most common site of metastases are liver, lung, and brain. And because we treat these patients commonly with chemotherapy, we know from experience that some chemotherapy agents penetrate the blood-brain barrier to some degree. And as I mentioned before, there's probably more permeability after local treatments, allowing more of these drugs to penetrate that space. Some of these drugs are the fluorouracil derivatives, such as capecitabine or zolota, um, some platinum salts, so carboplatin, cisplatin, and some anthracycline, such as doxorubicin, which we all know as the red devil, unfortunately. In addition, there was a recent approval last year in April by the FDA. So it's an antibody drug conjugate called Sasituzuma gobotecan. The brand name is Tradelvi. So um, an antibody drug conjugate, it's an antibody that goes and and targets a specific protein present in cancer cells. For this particular drug, the protein is called trope 2 And that antibody is linked to a small chemotherapy drug. That drug is called SN38. So when the medication is administered, so it's an IV medication and it's administered, it goes to targets the trope 2 
proteins in the breast cancer cells and delivers the chemotherapy SN38 directly into the cells. And that inhibits the repair of DNA and leads to cell death. This was based on results from a trial called the EMU-132 trial. And that led to the approval by the FDA. But there was another trial called the Ascent 3 that showed that in some patients that had breast cancer brain metastases, there was an improvement in the progression-free survival or the time to progression in patients that had stable brain metastases from their tumors. Another type of breast cancer is called the HER2-positive breast cancer, and that's characterized by overexpression of the human epidermal receptor 2. We call that HER2. So in a normal breast cancer cell, if they have a normal amount of HER2 receptors, that sends some signals telling the cells to grow and divide. But if this is overexpressed, then there's too much HER2 signaling, and then the cells keep growing and growing and growing. This is considered an aggressive type of breast cancer. However, breakthrough research in this subtype has completely changed prognosis to good. And there has been multiple new treatments approved in the past five years, and some have blood-brain barrier penetrance. It was 1984 where the HER2 gene was initially identified, and in 1985, gene amplification was found in breast cancer cells. So it took a few years to develop this drug, this monoclonal antibody called Herceptin, that was developed in 92, and then in 98, it was approved for the treatment of metastatic HER2-positive breast cancers. And in 2005, it um, was shown that it improved the life of early HER2-positive breast cancers. Then it took a few years, but another drug called lapatinib also was approved for the treatment of metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. And after that, it was just an explosion of treatment options for this patient. So in 2012, we got the approval for pertuzumab, another monoclonal antibody that targets the HER2 uh, proteins. In 2013, TDM1, another um, antibody drug conjugate that targets the same protein. And then just in the past two or three years, we've gotten multiple um, indications and multiple treatment options for this patient. So more to come in this subtype of breast cancer. Trastuzumab and Tamsine TDM1, or the brand name Catsila, is an antibody drug conjugate that targets the HER2 protein, but then it delivers a small chemotherapy payload to the cells. It was approved in 2013 by the FDA for the treatment of metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer based on the AMELIA trial. That particular trial randomized patients to receive the TDM1 versus lapatinib, which is another HER2 drug in combination with capecitabine, which is a chemotherapy drug, and that was a standard of care at that time. And this particular trial showed that there was improvement in the survival of these patients and then the time to progression for these patients. A few years later, the investigators went back and looked for patients that were enrolled in this trial that already had a history of stable brain metastases, and they saw they had about 50 uh, patients in each arm, and they noted that the patients that received TDM1 actually had an improvement in their survival, so they were living longer by receiving TDM1 than capecitabine lapatinib. So that translates into possible CNS activity of these drugs into the brain metastases. Hard to climb was another trial that compared the use of tucatinib, which is an oral drug that blocks various sites of the HER2 family of proteins, plus capecitabine, which is a chemotherapy drug, plus Herceptin, in comparison to Herceptin, capecitabine, and placebo. This had a pivotal trial design in the sense that this particular trial allowed patients that had active brain metastases to be enrolled and receive the experimental treatment. When we look at uh, clinical trials in general, most patients that have active or progressing brain metastases are excluded from the trials. So this particular trial allowed patients to participate. Of the total 612 patients, 291 had brain metastases, so 48% of the population had brain metastases. 
40% of those had stable brain meds, whether they had treated, they didn't need any new treatment. And then 60% had active brain metastases. 20% of them were just diagnosed with newly brain meds, and some had had a diagnosis of brain metastases, were treated, but were progressing. And then they uh, received experimental drug. We know that the combination of the tocotinib, trastuzumab, and capecitabine reduce the risk of disease progression or death in patients with brain metastases by about 52%. When they studied all the patients that received the tocotinib, not only had an improvement in disease progression, but it also reduced the risk of developing future brain lesions or even death. So this completely changed um, the way we see her to breast cancer brain metastases because we know that we have drugs that um, actually can penetrate that space and can benefit patients to help live longer. Another antibody drug conjugate that was approved in 2020 was NHER2 or FAM trastuzumab deroxtecan. This was approved after a phase two trial called the Destiny Breast 01. This is a treatment approved for metastatic breast cancer patients. So this is also proven to be beneficial in patients in the earlier metastatic setting with just a few lines of treatment. In this particular trial, patients were heavily pretreated. So there's more to come, and this is being studied in patients with um, brain metastases only. Other oral combinations that we sometimes consider in um, her 2 positive um, breast cancer patients that have brain meds is the combination of capecitabine, the chemotherapy drug, plus neratinib or lapatinib, which are oral drugs that um, target the HER2 proteins. And they have also shown to be beneficial in this particular subtype of patients. In the next section, Dr. Saliano lists a few trials for HER2-positive and triple-negative cancers, and I decided to keep it in, but don't bother to take the notes, and uh, just look it up in our episode notes, and you will find them there. So some clinical trials in triple negative and HER2 positive brain metastases. The first one is the antibody drug conjugate, Tradelvi, that's being used in HER2 negative breast cancer with brain metastases. It's a phase two trial and it's across the, the USA. So it's just about a matter of looking what sites are open and see if a patient might participate. Another trial, a phase 1b2 trial called TOPATH, it's looking at tocotinib in combination with pembrolizumab, which is an immunotherapy drug, and trastuzumab, so the traditional Herceptin, in uh, HER2-positive breast cancer brain metastases, and that's in Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA. There's another trial based off the NIH looking at TDM1 alone versus TDM1 and a chemotherapy drug called temozolomide in secondary prevention of HER2-positive breast cancer brain metastases. There's another experimental drug called GDC0084, and that's available at Dana-Farber for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer, brain metastases. There is another mechanism of escape or resistance of this treatment through the HER3 protein. And here at Moffitt and at Roswell Park, we are studying the use of vaccines, so vaccines of a type of white blood cell called dendritic cells that will target this HER2, HER3 um, proteins, and we're going to combine that with pembrolizumab, immunotherapy drug, for the treatment of brain metastases from triple negative or HER2-positive breast cancers. So this is a phase two, is actually open at Russell Park, and it's about to be opening at Moffitt. The next study is a study of TDXD, so that's the NHER2 um, that we talked about, and this is being studied in a phase three in multiple sites across the United States and internationally for patients who have metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer with or without brain metastases. So again, they're trying to expand to see if this drug is uh, beneficial in this particular set of patients. And then there's also a study based of City of Hope that is looking at CAR T cells. So it's a type of engineer immunotherapy for patients with recurrent brain or leptomeningeal disease. So in conclusion, breast cancer brain metastasis incidence is increasing to improve systemic control as well as improve imaging techniques. Multidisciplinary management is important to tackle both the brain and systemically. Stereotactic radiation is a standard of care for localized disease. 
whole brain radiation is used for more diffuse brain metastases, and improved outcomes may be achieved with combined local and systemic approaches. So that was our presentation for today. Thanks for joining us. And now we're going to go with some questions. so much. Dr. Soriano, you mentioned at the beginning of your presentation that there's really not a guideline for screening for brain metastasis. Can you speak a little bit to why that is like that and whether there should be? Yeah, we go by the ASCO national guidelines or the NCCN um, guidelines, and there is really no um, guidelines for screening, meaning when a patient is diagnosed with metastatic disease, we do systemic scans every, let's say, three or four months or every six months to see what's the benefit of treatment and if the cancer is responding to the treatment or not. When someone is diagnosed, for example, with lung cancer, we know that because there's a really high incidence of possible metastasis to the brain, the guidelines recommend a screening MRI or CT of the head. In breast cancer, because the incidence is not as high, it's not really adopted by the national guidelines, but we find the patients that have breast cancer have more advanced disease in their CNS because we detect them once they have symptoms. We're looking into our own data and we are going to publish that data and we hope that this gets reconsidered by the national guidelines. I know there are other institutions that sometimes have institutional guidelines where they would say, yes, we're screening all patients with high risk, let's say young patients or HER2 positive or um, triple negative. So I think it's just looking into what the trend is right now in order for us to modify the guidelines for the future. So then it must be symptoms that lead to you looking into whether brain metastasis exists. Can you talk to the symptoms that are present or can be present with brain metastasis as well as leptomeningeal disease, if there's some overlap or what leads you to then do screening? Yeah, absolutely. It's hard in the sense that we could all have a headache and that not necessarily might mean that someone has metastasis to their brain. There is overlap into the traditional tumors into the brain and the CNS leptomeningeal disease. Typically, when I counsel my patients, I talk to them about symptoms that are not their usual. So if they had a history of headaches, if they're having a new headache, a different headache, a headache that's associated with other symptoms, such as changes in their vision or nausea or vomiting, or the headache wakes them up in the middle of the night, or they wake up with nausea or vomiting, those tend to make me a little bit more suspicious that something might happen in the brain. And I want them to bring that up to my attention so we can do the appropriate workup. Also, when patients have sudden loss of vision or the, something that's associated with weakness, such as like when patients have a stroke, right? Because it depends on what part of the brain is the tumor located at. And if there's swelling that can cause compression into the other structures that might bring symptoms, that's when we can have loss of balance. We can have weakness. We can have difficulty speaking. We can have peripheral or central vision loss. So there's just uh, a range of symptoms that we try to cancel our patients to look for. And then there can be some overlap into leptomeningeal disease, but leptomeningeal disease tends to cause more of a diffuse sudden drop and sudden change in their neurological status. And those symptoms tend to be progressively worsening more rapidly than with a traditional brain tumor. So if someone is having, you know, some back pain and the back pain suddenly starts feeling that they have no sensation or they start having loss of control of their bowel or bladder, then that tends to speak a little bit more about leptomeningeal disease. But some patients can also be asymptomatic. So that's why there is really challenging. Yeah. Yeah, it is very challenging. As you mentioned, there are so many more trials for HER2 positive than triple negative or ER positive, especially with triple negative, which makes up almost half of brain mets. Why is this? And how do we encourage researchers to work more on this aggressive subtype and open more trials? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. The breakthrough of newer therapies have been developed in HER2-positive breast cancer for the past 20 years. So I think that's why there are in many more trials because we have so many options, but that doesn't mean that there's no clinical trials looking at triple negative. It just has been a little bit harder to tackle more recently, but there are many scape mechanisms for the triple negative. And I think it's just a matter of time that new clinical trials pop up in the future for this subtype um, of breast cancer. Okay. Is there such a thing as a best systemic treatment for each subtype of breast cancer for brain metastasis? For example, this is the best for her too. Yeah, I don't think we have any data right now comparing each approach to another approach. So there's no good data to say, oh, this is the best treatment. It's a discussion of oncologists with the patient and see how patients are tolerating the treatment and their past experience with other drugs. So there's a lot of discussion into why would I choose a regimen over another, but sometimes even though best treatment might be this, I know that my patient's not going to tolerate it. So it's also about quality of life and maintaining that quality of life. So there's a lot of thought that we put into it, but we also have to consider all the patient characteristic in that relationship with the patient. So it's about exposure to different drugs. Gotcha. So once you have treated brain metastasis, especially from a radiation perspective, is there a protocol for monitoring uh, the brain after treatment? And if so, what does that look like? We we order MRIs pretty regularly after the diagnosis of brain metastasis. Usually it's about every two to three months for the first year. And then potentially if we have good control, then we can space that out a little bit longer. But basically we don't really like to go beyond maybe four or five months without having some sort of image that's taken because the then after the detection of brain metastasis, if there are future brain metastasis, to catch them early so that they can be treated. So once you've had brain mets, you will always be monitored for them? Is that what I'm hearing you saying? Yeah, that's certainly, I think, our practice here. Once there is a diagnosis of brain metastasis, that monitoring with MRIs does continue. Okay. And... um... Is there a best imaging tool you talked about scanning or imaging, looking at the, the brain after treatment? What imaging tool do you use as considered the best practice? So the standard would be to do MRIs. That offers a better resolution than a CT scan would and allows for the detection of, of smaller brain metastasis that could be treated when they're asymptomatic. Gotcha. I don't think this is something that was addressed during the presentation, but it's certainly a a popular um, conversation among those who have brain metastasis and get radiation. Is that of radiation necrosis? What are the risks for it? And how do you, I know there's some difficulty in distinguishing tumor growth versus radiation necrosis. If you could just speak to that a little, that would be great. Yeah, that's a good question. The factors that can um, lead to higher risks of radiation necrosis potentially are the treatment of larger brain metastasis, higher doses of radiation treatment as well, and the treatment of multiple brain metastasis as well. So the question of how we distinguish between radiation necrosis versus pseudoprogression or radiation treatment changes after patients have received radiation treatment versus tumor growth in subsequent scans after radiation treatment. So typically, the reason why we're also ordering these scans at regular interval is to really monitor the changes. After radiation treatment, sometimes it's hard just with one scan to tell what exactly is occurring. And certainly, patients are asymptomatic. What our preferred approach would be is just to follow those, because more than likely, what's occurring is probably just radiation treatment changes when symptoms also occur alongside those changes on MRI, the radiation oncologist might place patients on steroids. And then really it's dependent on where we treated, the discussion between us, the neurosurgeons, as to whether or not we feel like it might be beneficial to remove that area that's been radiated. Because really the only gold standard to determine whether or not it's radiation necrosis versus potential tumor growth would be to remove the tumor but obviously that carries risks. It's really a discussion between us, the neurosurgeons, also the radiologists play a large role in this. There's sometimes 
additional scans that we can get for fusion MRIs um, that offer a, a different level of resolution that can help us answer these questions if that's a concern. So it sounds like while other imaging exists, like I've heard people talk about MRI spectroscopy and, and that sort of thing, what you're saying, it really is the best judgment of the clinician over time to watch what the tumor does versus relying on any kind of imaging tool to say yes or no, this is necrosis. Correct. Yeah. The management strategy we follow over here is when there are cases where we're concerned about one of those events occurring over another is really to discuss those cases in a tumor board setting and to have all the experts weigh in on that question. Gotcha. It always comes up with brain metastasis is prognosis. I know it's going to be different for individual patients, but how do you address that? Yeah, so I think that's an important question. I think that's really a discussion that needs to take place on an individual basis with the patient, with the provider, to judge not only the treatment that has taken place of the brain metastasis, but then also their overall systemic treatment, the burden of cancer throughout the whole body too, and potential options that are still available for patients. We've made a lot of strides in the management of brain metastasis to improve outcomes, but I think we have a long way to go. Is there a standard time frame after receiving radiation for recurrence or is it different for everyone or what's the likelihood of recurrence after radiation? We do a pretty good job with treating the areas that we can see when we treat with stereopathic radiation treatment. So overall, the control rates in the areas that we treat are about 90% or so. However, because it's just focused radiation treatment, unfortunately, the cancer can come back in areas that we don't treat. And that's why we really continue to monitor with MRIs quite regularly between two to three months for the first year after receiving stereotactic radiation treatment to monitor for the growth of additional sites of cancer. And it's it's hard to predict in, in every patient what that interval would be, but that's why we order those MRIs at pretty regular intervals across all patients to make sure that if there are new brain metastasis that do occur or even in an area that we have previously treated that they're caught early so they can uh, be managed appropriately. Okay. And and what about management? You listed the side effects during the presentation. What kind of medication or how do you manage the side effects such as fatigue? Are there things that help with those side effects? Yeah, so certainly sometimes from the delivery of the radiation treatment or from the metastasis themselves, there can be edema that surrounds the metastasis. So that is managed with steroids. That's one of the primary tools that we we use. And then I mentioned memantine for um, some of the memory changes that can occur with whole brain radiation treatment. There's anti-seizure medications that are prescribed as well as prophylaxis sometimes for potential seizure activity. Okay. And we are just about out of time. Is there a recommendation, someone who's just been diagnosed with brain mutts? Discussion with their provider and their clinician. We are a team, so we're all trying to help take care of you, but it is a multidisciplinary um, team. Just having that trust and conversation. And if you don't know what to expect, ask. If you don't know, if you're afraid, we're here, we're doing this every day. So we probably have most of the answers that um, come through our patient's head. It is a journey. So it's just, we're along for the ride. Okay. Thank you to Dr. Soyano and Dr. Ahmed for a very informative program. This has been a great hour. I did want to let everyone know that we've been hard at work creating a website that is dedicated to breast cancer, brain metastasis, as well as leptomeningeal disease. It's a resource for patients. You'll be able to find it at mbcbrainmets.org. So once again, thank you to our speakers and audience. We are grateful for your presentation and attendance today. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Lisa Laudico. Sound design and original music from Connor Kinsley and Samantha Silverstein. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our News Blast, rate and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday. 
check out our blog and full episode notes at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.